know, I've seen a lot of people saying, well, that mandates don't work or there's no evidence about mandates. But our study is specifically mm-hmm. asking the question, what happens when you take away a mandate from asking from schools? And the answer is COVID cases shoot up. Welcome to the Duck Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Today, I've got a really great guest joining me to talk about how we know that masking works at a population level and why mask mandates, not just requests, recommendations, encouragement to wear masks, but mask mandates are an important and effective policy. This episode pairs really well with our patron episode from this week, where Artie, Phil, and I talked about the recently updated and much criticized Cochrane Review titled Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Acute Respiratory Viruses, which has been shared around in the media by folks claiming that it has definitively cemented proof that masks work, but mandates don't, or that masks work individually, but are useless at the community level. And I want to pause for a second here on the mask mandate point. Oftentimes when you talk about mandates, people will say, well, how will it be enforced? What if people wear the masks wrong and don't comply? The answer is that the point of the mandate is not enforcement. It's communication. It's about conveying the conditions necessary to protect ourselves at the population level. It's about context. And it's about understanding that when it comes to infectious diseases especially, Protecting yourself at the individual level is not and will never be enough. So my guest today is here to talk about the evidence that supports the claim that mask mandates do work. We'll be talking about a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed mask mandates significantly helped break chains of COVID infections in schools. Even after the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lifted mask requirements for schools in 2021, many states kept the mandates. Massachusetts, the state in which the study took place, kept mask mandates in place in public schools at the start of the 2021-2022 school year, but then rescinded the statewide policy in February of 2022, leaving the choice of mask mandates up to the individual school district from that point forward. Once mask mandates were lifted, researchers observed and documented sustained increased rates of COVID in schools that lifted their mask requirements. Though some of those schools continued to communicate directly to parents and via school officials that masks were strongly encouraged due to high amounts of virus in the community, the mere encouragement to mask was not in practice sufficient, and the majority of students remained unmasked if a mask mandate was lifted. So we have one of the co-authors of that study here today to talk through the nuts and bolts of this, why masking works at a population level, and how we know, and also how we know that mandates are more effective at communicating the importance of masking than mere recommendations. And again, it has nothing to do with enforcement. So now to my guest. Dr. Ellie Murray is a professor of epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health and a co-author of the study Lifting Universal Masking in Schools, COVID-19 Incidents Among Students and Staff, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2022. She researches how to make evidence-based decisions for public health and medicine and strategies for communicating the results of rigorous research to policymakers and the public. She is also the co-host of the Casual Inference podcast, which is partnered with the American Journal of Epidemiology. Ellie, welcome to the Death Panel. It is so great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Really long overdue. So you were one of the co-authors of the study called Lifting Universal Masking in Schools, COVID-19 Incidents Among Students and Staff, which was published in NEJM um, that we're about to talk about today. And the bottom line of the study is where I'd like us to start. The study's results support universal masking, and it's important evidence backing up the point that we assert often on this show 
the individuated personal responsibility frames of masking are not sufficient. You know, we need universal policies. We need things like mask mandates. To start off, can we talk about the study's conclusion that the removal of universal school masking policies in Massachusetts was associated with an increased incidence of COVID-19? What's the bottom line here when it comes to what this study actually is telling us about universal masking versus individual masking? Yeah. So I think here, one of the really important pieces is that we were able to look at this decision taking away mask mandates versus having mask mandates and seeing the harms that related to turning the mask mandates off and that increased COVID cases and also school absenteeism, that this impact was really large. And a number of you know, people have asked the question like, well, how much were people really masking in these schools? Mm -hmm. And what we see is that even if masking adherence wasn't perfect, we're still seeing this huge harm of taking away the mask mandates, which really kind of emphasizes the fact that having everyone required to mask, even if it's not perfect, is still going to be really beneficial on reducing transmission compared to leaving it up to individuals to choose whether or not to mask. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Thank you so much for, for just laying it out like that, because I, I feel like it's very important to differentiate between what the point of some of these interventions are in terms of what their actual use value is as a public health intervention versus the framing of how it's talked about rhetorically or politically or within media coverage. And one thing that we've seen that's been really dominant in response to the removal of mask mandates, which is, you know, exactly this this time period that the study covers, um, is that the line emerged that, you know, it's it's actually okay that one-way masking works and that as long as you can sort of put on the best quality mask that you can afford, even if you're in a room full of people who are unmasked, you know, you're you're good to go. And ultimately, you know, what I really appreciate about this study is it very clearly lays out the fact that that position and that conclusion that people put forward and are so sure about is really based on just kind of a guess. It's not um, something that plays out and bears out in the evidence. So I'd love to sort of talk about now that we know what we know, you know, there is a marked benefit of having things be implemented at a community level and not be relying solely on individual masking. You know, what do we how do we know what we know? What were some of the methods that you used for the study and why did you all choose to do it the way you did? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this question of how well do masks work for either the individual that wears them or for communities where some people are wearing them and some people are maybe not. It's a really hard one to study because all of the reasons why people choose to mask or not mask are going to be tangled up with all of the reasons why they may come into contact with the virus, why they may end up you know, getting sick, testing positive, et cetera. And so there's a lot of possible confounding in answering the question, how well do masks work for preventing respiratory disease? But last spring, we had this really unique situation in Massachusetts where for basically almost all of the 2021-2022 school year, all schools were required by the state to have mandatory masking. And that was in place just everywhere, basically, from September through to then at the end of February, the state announced that school districts could now decide whether or not schools in their district would mask or not mask. And that decision was still going to be a mandate, yes or no, but it was up to now the school districts. And so what this means is that we have this whole long period of time, which includes the big Omicron winter peak from 2021, mm -hmm. 2022, where all the school districts in Massachusetts were doing the same thing in terms of requiring masks. So we ended up looking just at the greater Boston area because that's a much more sort of similar area in terms of density and kind of easier to compare versus thinking about, you know, some districts out in Western Massachusetts. Um, but we could look at that and we could see that even if some districts, school districts had sort of consistently more cases, that the patterns over time and how the cases went up and down were very similar. Mm. And so basically, you know, all the school districts followed the same sort of this is the low period, this is a high period, and tended to sort of be in the same rank ordering of COVID cases 
from that September to February period. And this is really key because this is the piece that really allows us to answer this question with the data, that beforehand, these trends were parallel between the different districts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so important to be able to actually look at what the effect of these policy choices were. And it is something that's difficult to study. One of the things that we've, you know, heard a lot during the pandemic is like, oh, you know, like the gold standard is a randomized controlled trial. But obviously, in the case of masking, the idea of sort of doing a blinded group and a a group that's like, you know, going to be prevented, I guess, from being able to use masks and then a group allowed to use masks, like we're running into major ethical issues. So obviously, as you've said, like, between both the actual logistics of studying mask wearing and the reasons that people do mask and don't mask and the kind of confounding, you know, frameworks that you're you're grappling with. And then also in the context of, you know, knowing that there are these design limitations to the types of ways that we can study masking, there were some decisions made about how you all were going to do this analysis that really was trying to actually tease out the difference between universal masking and these periods where individual masking and and show that there is actually a distinct difference in these interventions. And one of the things that you were able to see through the way that you were doing the study avoided some of the observational bias that you might have actually run into, for example, if like this was attempted to be done in a randomized control trial way. Yes, exactly. So Basically, you know, we have the situation of the school districts have these parallel trends before the -hmm. state makes its decision. We also know that, you know, the state decision obviously wasn't influenced by any particular school district's COVID cases or mass preferences. That is kind of overall the, the state level decision. And then what we have, too, is that each of the districts had a somewhat you can almost think of it as sort of a random decision for a specific week to turn masks off Mm -hmm. that week or not. And this is because a number of the school districts had, before the state even announced the decision to get rid of masks, had already decided that their mask mandate at the district level was tied to the state requirement and that whenever the state requirement turned off, they would turn off their mask mandate. Whereas other districts had decided that the state turning off the mask mandate would be the trigger for them to discuss turning off their mask mandate and then either turning it off or not after that happened. And so what we see is that we ended up with a sort of three-week period during which some school districts, more and more school districts, turned off their mask mandates. And then two school districts, Boston and Chelsea, which never turned off their mandates during our study period. And this basically allowed us then to say, well, Given how parallel everything was beforehand, Mm -hmm. if this change in policy, which has essentially random timing, doesn't, if it doesn't affect, then things should continue to be parallel afterwards. But what we saw is that things very rapidly diverged from the previous parallel trends and the school districts that turned off their masking mandates had just this rapid increase in cases such that, you know, it kind of broke out of the pattern of parallel trends. Now, some people might say, well, maybe it's just that like some schools had better ventilation and we're seeing like actually explosions of cases in in schools that are less well resourced. But that's not exactly what the data show in this case. Yeah, the really interesting thing is, you know, in the Boston area, we have these really, you know, diverse levels of school district funding, you know, Cambridge and Newton and Brookline with a lot of funding and Boston and Chelsea with not that much funding. And what we saw is that it was the better funded school districts that were the ones that turned off masks and turned them off soonest. And so, you know, on the other hand, the school districts where the buildings are older, the student population and the staff population are generally more disadvantaged. Those were the districts that kept mask mandates in place. And so in those districts that are well-resourced, it may be that, you know, we don't, we really don't expect COVID cases because they have ventilation and distancing and things like that. And so when we see a big increase Mm -hmm. based on, okay, their trajectory has changed relative to the trajectory of other d- districts. And we see that even though these are the better resource districts, 
it basically tells us, you know, the less advantaged school districts ended up then with fewer cases of COVID because they maintained the masking. It's so interesting to consider, especially when there was a big emergence of the discourse that one-way masking works. And this was forwarded by, in a lot of cases, people who are huge advocates for ventilation. And this is not to knock ventilation, but it is to say that the idea that ventilation alone paired with an individual masking directive or recommendation or encouragement versus a kind of population level mandate, which isn't so much about enforcement, but is about communication about the sort of severity, necessity and urgency of masking and also where it's appropriate and when and why more so than it is about, you know, hunting people down and making sure that they comply. Because as you were saying, one of the things that you were able to observe through looking at this very specific period where we actually got to test out the idea of does one-way masking provide a similar advantage to universal masking? Because it's important to remember that that's actually the comparison that was being made in the phrase of like one-way masking works, not just that it works in general, but that it was equal to or just as good as the idea that masking at a community level prevents progression in chains of transmission through understanding that, you know, we're working with a, a virus that is in the air that spreads through being in spaces together. And that ultimately, as you were able to observe, even the ventilation and the one-way masking, like that is not enough to sufficiently control cases in a way that could have been if there were universal masking protections in place in those districts. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the thing is, you know, when we think about Know, the biology of viruses, um, the infectious disease epi of how viruses transmit. Obviously, from a sort of first principles perspective, masking and ventilation both seem to do the same thing, that they would clear the virus from the air and that this would reduce the frequency with which individuals come in contact with infectious particles. And so, you know, from that sort of theoretical standpoint, obviously, masking and ventilation should work relatively similarly. but. The fact is that, you know, masking before the pandemic, we didn't really know if masking at this kind of level would do much good. We hadn't really looked at this widespread everybody universal masking mm -hmm. question. And the studies that we had pre-pandemic were mostly on this sort of masking alone question, right? Uh, individual masking in the context of people around them not masking. And the evidence was pretty minimal on the benefit of that. On the other hand, you know, what we see with our study is not necessarily specifically the effect of wearing a mask. It's the effect of that mask mandate, right? Which, as you said, is includes all of the things that go together with the requirement to wear a mask. So if when people are wearing a mask, they also step a little bit further back from each other, or they also wash their hands more frequently, or they also spend less time indoors so that they can take off that mask. Those things are all factored in as parts of the way in which a mask mandate work, which are different from the way the mask itself is, is working. And so basically, this mask mandate question actually kind of incorporates all those other changes as well as the filtration value of the mask. And mm -hmm. I think that that's where we see why we see such a, a big effect in, in a, a lot of ways, especially in the context of the schools where the mask mandates were lifted, having good ventilation. It's likely that with the mask mandates gone, all those other sort of consequences of seeing people in masks and changing behavior also went away. And so that they were left with just ventilation and a few people may be choosing to wear masks, whereas in the universal masking situation, there's all the other changes that come with seeing everyone around you wearing masks, which may provide enough benefit, you know, in addition to everyone wearing masks, that it doesn't even necessarily matter. Like, there was no requirement that the masks be a certain type. Right. There was... We did not adjust for wearing masks badly or well. You know, we know school kids have a problem with wearing masks perfectly. And what we see here is that when universal masking was mandated in schools, it was helpful despite all those issues around what kinds of masks are people wearing and how well are they wearing and et cetera. Thank you for that. That was so it's so important. And this is such this is such a key point that we get asked about all the time, because obviously, like 
better masks, better fitting masks. These are like the ideal um, endpoints. But also when we're trying to study disease in a population, we can't be always looking to study only the best case scenarios. And when you hear a lot of discussion of like what quality certain mask studies are, often people will say like, well, this study didn't look at compliance, so we can't perfectly prove that, you know, masks do X, Y, Z to whatever level. But ultimately, as you're saying, it's more about how does this intervention behave in the community? Exactly. And so, you know, this is, I think, this is sort of a key piece. And it's it's something that, you know, when we talk about other types of infectious disease interventions, we do distinguish. For example, we talk about vaccine efficacy in a randomized trial tells you, you know, for an individual who's receiving the vaccine, how much benefit does that person get from the vaccine? On the other hand, after a trial, when the vaccine is made available, we ask questions like vaccine effectiveness at a community level, which says for a given percentage of people in the community that are vaccinated, how much does that reduce everybody's risk of infection, including those people who didn't get vaccinated? Right. right. And so that's kind of the idea here that universal masking is telling us how well does telling people that they have to mask protect the community even if not everyone masks perfectly and not everyone's mask is perfect. And the opposite here of lifting the mandates was, you know, basically just telling people that they can do whatever they want. And also potentially with the implication that you're telling people that the emergency is over, that Mm. the need to protect yourself is over and that the situation is safe now, which is not actually, you know, the truth. And what we saw in the data is it it wasn't the truth because we saw this really big increase in COVID cases. Um, I also wanted to uh, say um, one other thing about ventilation here, because I think that that's really important because um, a number of the advocates for improving ventilation are in the Boston area and have um is my understanding being working with some of the school districts. And so some of these school districts that got rid of masking are ones where there had been improved ventilation. And, you know, I absolutely agree that theoretically improved ventilation should be an effective way of getting rid of respiratory viruses, not just COVID, but potentially lots of other respiratory viruses. And it's absolutely something that we need to explore. The problem is we don't know what good ventilation means, really. (laughs) We don't know how good that ventilation has to be. We don't really know, you know, how many air changes, what markers should we be looking at? Should, you know, we don't, we're not, we have very few tools for testing the virus content of the air um, Mm -hmm. in real time that would be necessary for really evaluating what should the requirements be to say this ventilation is good enough. And I mean, obviously, we can ask sort of population questions of like, well, this building has this type of system and what's the COVID infection rate there? Um, mm-hmm. But we haven't had a lot of those studies either. Right. And so we're kind of in this place where it's like ventilation could theoretically work if we did it right once we figured out what right means versus masking <laughs> is something we have tried and we have looked at the data and we have seen that it works. Right. Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, this idea of like, well, yes, I'd love to move to a place where we know enough about ventilation and we have been able to get ventilation changed and measured and the information of what the current ventilation is in a a space available to people in such a way that ventilation will solve our problems. You know, in the same way as, you know, I'm really glad that we have indoor plumbing and I don't have to go (laughs) to, you know, a river with a bucket and then boil my water. Right. That's really fantastic. But if I didn't have indoor plumbing and my only source was a river, I would definitely boil my water. (laughs) So, you know, we're kind of in that place with indoor air. The ventilation research just isn't there yet. And so we need to think about what else can we do for now until Mm -hmm. we get to a place where the ventilation is going to suffice for respiratory infections. That's such an important point. And I think the other point that's very important important to bring in is that like the reason to invest in ventilation upgrades, particularly in spaces full of children, is not necessarily COVID. It's things like asthma and making sure that kids are not being exposed to social determinants of health that are going to result in long-term negative outcomes. The reason to invest in making school air cleaner is not just COVID, but the point should be making school 
air clean, right? Like, and as to the best of our ability, it's not like saying, oh, you get one masks or ventilation. Like, no, we're, we're saying both and that they do different things and that there is a marked observable intervention that masks in at a population level are actually able to do. And yet the kind of popular line is that masks work, mandates don't. So, um, you know, as you're saying that these are very distinct interventions and they are we're talking about two very different things when we say masks work or mandates work. Right, exactly. And that's one thing I've seen in in you know I've seen a lot of people saying, well, that mandates don't work or there's no evidence about mandates. But our study is specifically mm-hmm. asking the question, what happens when you take away a mandate from asking from schools? And the answer is covid cases shoot up in students, in staff, absenteeism goes up. You know, we estimated something like on the order of 20,000 missed school days for students and staff together over this 15 week period. Like it's that's the real learning loss. (laughs) Talk about exactly talk about learning loss. Um, These these impacts of taking away this mandate were so large. And, you know, I I have for, you know, some sometime now advocated for mask wearing in the pandemic, but I'm not someone who has always been in favor of mask wearing. Hmm. In the early days of the pandemic, when all the evidence on masks that I was aware of was this pre-COVID evidence where we mostly were looking at masking alone, either masking for an uninfected person masking alone in the context of nobody else's masking or an infected person with symptoms masking Overall, we we saw pretty minor equivocal results mm-hmm. for, for those studies. And so, you know, in the early pandemic, I thought, you know what, it doesn't really make sense to be telling people to wear masks or even encouraging people to wear masks because there's not really good evidence that it works. We have a limited stockpile of works of masks. The only place we do have good evidence for them is in those healthcare settings where exposure risk is really high. Mm -hmm. But then we started to get data. And that's what changed my mind. And, you know, even when we did this study, I still didn't expect the results to be anything near as Mm -hmm. huge as what we found. This, you know, the impact of turning off masks is just really kind of mind-blowing. It is, absolutely. And I really appreciate you the way that you frame that um, because, to be honest, like I've been following your work since the beginning of the pandemic, and I remember discovering your work and then seeing a couple things about masking in that vein where, you know, and this was the line that was like WHO and CDC standard at the time, you know, which was that basically like, we had to make sure that we were reserving high quality masks for certain settings and we, you know, it wasn't that necessary. And I was like, you know, frustrated and disappointed because I was hoping that what I had sort of learned through my own like observed lived experience, which is obviously like biased and limited, but (laughs) being an immunocompromised person for 10 years in New York City through 10 New York City winters, um, (laughs) Is, is actually a good data set for your own personal risk decision making. And over the course of being um, on methotrexate in New York and being in college and working and being on the subway, working in Times Square, I started masking while commuting and I was able to go from having the flu five times a year to once a year, like by just adding this additional barrier. And so, you know, I was sort of of the mindset very early and that's why we took that position early that like, really taking like from the precautionary principle, like it can't hurt um, to attempt it at a population level and see what happens. Right. And and so I really appreciate you you framing this in terms of like just how important these data are for changing your own personal understanding of what masks and also most importantly, what mandates do. Yeah, exactly. And I um even, you know, I wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post um, at, at one point kind of describing why I had changed my mind on masking as well, because I think it's important for people to see how, you know, experts take in the information and use it to mm-hmm. change their thinking. And, you know, COVID-19 
obviously a completely new virus that we haven't had to deal with before. But respiratory infectious disease transmission is not a new field. And so there's lots of things that we knew before that we were sort of saying, okay, well, if COVID matches these things we've seen before, then this is what we should expect. And so in terms of mask wearing, prior to COVID, the studies had been in community settings of people with generally sort of average susceptibility to disease. Yeah. Um, And they had been in healthcare settings for people with high exposure risk. So we can call that, you know, sort of high vulnerability to disease. Um, But typically when these idea of like, should people mask during infectious disease outbreaks, when these studies were done, they typically excluded people with high susceptibility Right. Mm-hmm. So people who are immunocompromised, people who have underlying conditions that put them at high risk of bad outcomes. The sort of general view there was like, well, those people aren't going to tell us anything about the community <laughs> benefit, which I mean, obviously seems kind of ridiculous because that's those people are part of our, the community as you are. Not but, from many people's perspectives. <laughs> but. but there was this idea that community masking should just be asking, like, what about just like you pick a random person who's generally healthy and ask them to wear a mask either all as much as they can or if they get sick? And what will we see happen? And in those studies, you know, as you say, there was kind of this idea from, well, how could it hurt? And in those studies previously, we did see potential for the fact that the benefit could be so small that even a small risk of wearing them could outweigh it. And the types of risks that we were thinking about early on were things like, well, you know, if so for the flu, for example, it transmits pretty well from surfaces. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know whether COVID transmitted very well from surfaces or not. And this is something that you know, is very specific to a respiratory virus. Either it can or can't do it, really. But it's very, very, very hard to study. Mm -hmm. And so there was a concern that with the masks, this would create a situation where people are touching their face more. They're touching uh, a mask when they're maybe infected. They may be getting infectious material on their hands and either transmitting it to other people or transmitting it to themselves. And that because these prior studies showed such a tiny benefit, if any, of community masking, even a very small increase in transmission from the sort of touching of the mask could be amplified with community masking. But what we've seen now since then, based on all of our data from COVID, is that the benefit of masking together, of community masking, of everybody masking is so large that even if there's a risk of touching a mask and transmitting that way, it's totally swamped by the benefit of reducing the exhaled virus in the air and the inhaled virus for individuals. And we've seen this not only with COVID-19, but also with the flu. You know, our flu rates drop down to levels that we previously did not know were possible. And something that people often ask me is like, well, why didn't we wear masks for the flu? And the answer is because two things. One, we didn't know that they worked. Mm -hmm. And two, we thought there was nothing more we could do for the flu. Mm. And we have now learned that both those things are wrong. And so, you know, now the question is, should we be thinking about mask mandates for the flu too? Or should we just be thinking about changing norms? You know, At least what we see in school here is if you tell people that they have to wear a mask and then you tell them they don't, infectious disease rates go up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just I so appreciate the way that you just laid it out so plainly. Um, It's it's so important to to understand that, like, if we're going to attempt to reduce the risk of infecting yourself from bad hygiene practices with putting on, putting off, taking care of your mask, choosing how long you're going to wear it for, etc. It's important to remember that a mask mandate also facilitates folks to actually learn better best practices with wearing masks. And without the kind of context of practicing, there's no way to actually really kind of communicate that. And my own experience over those 10 years is exactly 
what I'm drawing on again here, which is that initially, like, I didn't understand that I could, you know, sort of infect myself from the surface of the mask. And I learned the hard way that if I was more careful, if I made sure to sort of have one mask for the morning commute and only take it off once I got to the bathroom, put it in a bag, wash my hands and face, you know, that there were procedures in place that once I practiced them and learned how to structurally incorporate them into my life, they drastically improved both my health and just my general life. Right, exactly. And I think this is sort of, you know, this this idea that like masks isn't a single, it's not a, a binary variable, right? It's not mm-hmm. mask, yes, mask, no. There are, you know, types of masks and ways of wearing them and the amount of people that are wearing them and who is deciding to wear them and where and when and for how long and what other hygiene practices are doing. All of that is kind of, part of the question. And we really need to think about, okay, how are we going to be able to put, you know, masks into practice? What is the most successful sort of overall community way of doing it? And then does that work, you know, as it happens? And, you know, there's also pushback from the other side from people who think, you know, well, Everybody should be wearing fit tested N95s or or respirators and and people wearing surgical masks might as well not be doing anything. And, you know, what we've seen in the data is that the more people are wearing masks, the less important your own masks quality is for protecting you. Mm -hmm. And this makes sense from what we know about infectious diseases. Right. Um, Infectious disease incidents or, you know, how much infectious disease there is at a population level depends on some properties of the pathogen itself, like how easy it is it transmit. But it also depends on how frequently people come in contact with the pathogen. Mm-hmm. And the more people there are wearing masks, even if masks only reduce the amount of exhaled pathogen by 10 percent, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's still 10 percent fewer possible contact opportunities. And they may reduce inhaled or exhaled pathogen by more than that. It may be by less than that. We don't necessarily know because there's not a single way to wear a mask and there's not a single mask. But what we do know is that when enough people wear them, we do see a measurable improvement in infectious disease rates. And I think it's also, you know, it's important to kind of remember also that that COVID spreads exponentially. And so even small reductions in breaking certain chains of transmission are going to result in things like hospitals facing less pressure, primary care providers facing less pressure. You know, we're going to see fewer people concentrated maskless waiting for pas- Paxlovid at pharmacies, right? So this yeah. this ultimately isn't ever about the one isolated individual wearing that single mask in the perfect way. It's about how in time and space and in community does the virus behave in the air in our bodies and sort of how much are we going to encounter? And this is a much more complex process than we could even pretend that we could know and see and study for sure. Yes. And I think this is the thing that's that's really crucial about infectious diseases. And it's important, you know, we, we see that most people have not before this in their lives needed to think about the community dynamics of infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, And as a result, most people are still approaching it in a sort of regular, quote unquote, disease way where they're thinking about what risk behaviors are they doing? How are those risk behaviors going to lead to their own personal outcomes? And that's the end of their thought process. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, what, what we've been seeing, you know, in other parts of the world where infectious diseases are more of a sort of daily part of life and kind of there are routines built in, we saw much, much better and quicker sort of community level responses. And not even necessarily that they were the perfect response. For example, you know, I like to use this this example that um, in Rwanda, within, you know, a couple of weeks of COVID being announced, there were portable hand washing, like we don't even have them in the U.S., but like these sort of porta potties, but not enclosed, but like for a a sink (laughs) set up at every bus stop. <laughs> and now we know, okay, hand hygiene's not as such a huge factor <laughs> for COVID, but the fact that this was just 
okay, this is an infectious disease. It could transmit via, you know, fomites on the hand. Let's get something rolled out that will reduce that while we while we work on getting other things in place and that people were using this intervention kind of really indicates how sort of literate in terms of public health of infectious disease people are in areas where infectious diseases happen a lot and that they know that it's not sort of oh just what I'm doing that matters for me it's what everyone's doing and and I think you know we're not used to thinking about disease in those exponential terms here and even a lot of doctors, even a lot of people in public health, you know, before COVID-19 and even still now, Mm -hmm. public health is mostly about chronic disease. Yeah. And most people who are trained or have worked in public health have learned very little or worked very little on infectious diseases. And it's, it's a theme for, you know, the past 50 years or more, a very specialized topic, even within the field of public health. And so the intuition that people have about diseases is not necessarily transferable to infectious diseases. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot here is that people are saying, well, how, why should this matter? Why should it matter what other people do? Why does it matter to other people what I do? And it's because they're not used to thinking in terms of transmission, in terms of exponential increase in harm or good. Um, and it, it it is something where we really need to figure out how to help people learn enough to develop the intuition to kind of think through some of these problems on their own. And I think it's also important to really kind of step back and, and look at how important these moments have been where we've seen shifts in metrics, shifts in mandates versus recommendations, because it's also important to mention, you know, this period coincides with the shift to the community level system from the community transmission level system. And so, you know, the idea of the end of the emergency and what that sort of symbolically marks and how that influences both conceptualizations of disease, but also sociologically people's behavior and how they understand themselves relative to risk and to other people around them. You know, these are really important moments where, you know, you all have been able to observe the direct harms of some of these policy decisions, some of these frameworks that we've forwarded in an effort to sort of combat um, people being too paranoid about the virus and sort of return to normal. They actually do have these marked observable exponential effects on actually how disease is going to behave in the community. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is another kind of aspect of infectious disease epidemiology that I think a lot of people have some sense of, but don't really know what what that intuition means. But when there's a really bad, really obvious, really dangerous infectious disease spreading, people stop listening to government officials. There's panic. People take matters into their own hands. There can be a complete, you know, at the extreme, you get the sort of, you know, walking dead, <laughs> everybody for themselves, zombie movie. Um, obviously, no infectious diseases are zombies, but you do see this like when when a disease is really obvious and really severe, tr- public trust in government completely bottoms out. And so I think there was this concern early on with COVID that the government, in order to sort of prevent that panic and loss of trust, uh, da- seems to have downplayed things to such a point that they have, in the end, caused the same lack of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this really kind of weird trade-off where, you know, people don't really care about a disease unless it has some impact on their life. So you need to explain to people why it has impact on their <laughs> life. But the messaging here with COVID, especially more recently, has leaned way too far to the COVID doesn't impact your life, Mm -hmm. where we know COVID impacts people's lives. We know over a million people have died. We know they've left behind millions of grieving family members. We know we have people with long-term consequences who've been out of work or unable to work. We know we have constant workplace absenteeism. We know that layoffs from industries that were closed have led to people finding other types of work. And, you know, that seems to range from everything from food service to airline pilots. And, you know, we're seeing all of these consequences 
of how COVID is still affecting our lives, even if it wasn't still transmitting, which it absolutely still is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we're often like sort of so caught up responding to things because the dominant position for a very long time has been you know, repeated and reproduced this uh, framework that we've, you know, mentioned a couple of times of like, well, masks work and mandates don't. And this is a kind of you do you choose your own adventure pandemic response. And then that's really the best way that we could be responding and kind of the right way to be responding. And you know, we we see these things just that are straight up not true, reproduced, whether in op-eds, studies, article, meta-analyses, what have you. And so much of the pro-mask argument is forced to be made in this context of like first res- responding to the sort of so-called proof that purports to argue or conclude with high confidence that like, you know, we definitely have a kind of definitive answer on mask mandates. And a recent example of this that has fueled a resurgence of this rhetoric being used just to like, you know, make broad and sweeping claims about masking and mask mandates is the Cochrane review on masking that was just updated. And these reviews are often called a gold standard of evidence-based medicine. Um, And we discuss some of these issues of using randomized control trials for masking. And, you know, this is something that we also talked about at length in our episode um, earlier this week about the Cochrane review for this week's patron bonus episode. Um, Many of the authors involved in doing this review were pretty high-level cranks um, who have been quoted (laughs) saying things like, you know, COVID spreads by fomites and that precautionary principle means first do nothing. Um, Masks cause untold psychic harm and acne, which should be weighed equally against ongoing disability, you know, like yada yada. (laughs) So, you know, this paper that you co-authored that we've just been discussing was not included in the review. And we don't need to waste your time breaking it down and refuting the Cochrane Review point by point. But I would love to have your take on the claims, you know, that we've seen downstream of this review. You know, um, for example, an opinion piece was published in The New York Times that said, you know, COVID mask mandates did nothing by Brett Stevens, which was inspired by the Cochrane Review. Stevens wrote, quote, but when it comes to the population level benefits of masking, the verdict is in. Mask mandates were a bust. Those skeptics who were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers for opposing mask mandates were right. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. In a better world, it would behoove the latter group to acknowledge their error along with its considerable physical, psychological, pedagogical, and political costs. And then to just give a quick second example to quote Jennifer Nuzzo, who has been a vocal and adamant public advocate for removing mask mandates in schools, but who is often just identified as a public health expert when quoted, um, like in this slate piece that I'm about to read from that was a hack job by Liz Heileman, um, who here quotes Nezzo saying, um, quote, the Cochrane Review tells us two things. <laughs> First, there have been few very high quality studies examining the effectiveness of masks during the COVID pandemic. And second, from the little high-quality data we do have, we don't see large impacts of masking in preventing viral infections at the population level. This doesn't necessarily mean masks don't protect individuals, but it could mean that the way that they're used at the population level is not effective. We need more randomized trials to understand why. So can you, like, just quickly as a sort of final point, respond to these claims that the Cochrane Review has somehow offered definitive evidence now that masks don't work at the population level. Yeah. So I think, I mean, first of all, if you actually read the Cochrane Review itself, Doesn't it say does that. not claim that at all. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second piece is that very you know, it doesn't have a lot of studies. It has even fewer studies that happened during the COVID pandemic, but it also has very few studies that look at group level masking, right? This idea of masking together or what some people call two-way masking, where there is a mask mandate or everyone in an area is required to be masked. Most of the studies that we have are still those from before the pandemic, where we were looking at an individual masking alone, surrounded by people who are unmasked. And that is a different question than Mm -hmm. mask mandates. So even if you wanted to conclude, the authors of the Cochrane Review conclude that there's not really enough evidence to make a decision, um, mostly based on the width of the confidence interval, not the dot size or direction of the point estimate from their meta-analysis. But the question they're deciding about 
even there is should you as an individual maybe wear a mask and not do mask mandates work? Mm-hmm. They're not reviewing mask mandates. <laughs> um, the second piece I think that that's important to kind of think about here, um, kind of larger scale, is this question of are Cochrane reviews a gold standard of evidence-based medicine? Mm-hmm. And the thing about this review is it follows the Cochrane standards. And the Cochrane standards are widely viewed as this sort of great tool for evidence-based medicine. But the problem there is that what we see is that evidence-based medicine is this separate field from epidemiology. It's a separate field from public health. It's a field that came out of clinical practice, Mm -hmm. clinical doctors moving into research. And whenever, when we were, they look about, you know, what do we know from epidemiology about and and health policy and health economics about answering questions like, did a mask mandate work? Those tools are not being used in evidence-based medicine. That <laughs> there's kind of implicit in the idea that the Cochrane review is the gold standard of evidence-based med- medicine is the claim that the evidence-based medicine is the gold standard of fields for answering <laughs> these questions. And <laughs> it's not. Um, And so I think that that also is kind of a piece that's important to note. So, for example, you know, a lot of what we've talked about today has been this issue of what intervention are we actually asking about and what are all the ways that intervention could impact the outcome? Mm -hmm. But the Cochrane Review dedicates the majority of its text to discussing the intricacies of how the random numbers were generated and then the allocation was assigned to participants in these trials. And the only discussion, if you can call it that, of what the interventions that the trials did is actually in a supplementary table, which is so badly formatted as to be completely unreadable. And so that there's no there's no consideration of, well, these studies were studying this particular type of mask intervention. I mean, yes, there is a breakdown to surgical masks versus controls and 95s versus surgical masks. But again, it doesn't, it's not just what kind of mask are we talking about? It's who's wearing it? When are they wearing it? How many people in the area are wearing it? What level of effect are we looking at? And this is where we really run into the crux of the issue. Mm -hmm. When we want to know how well does a vaccine program work at the population level for reducing infectious disease in a population, we have to look at observational studies of vaccine programs. Mm -hmm. When we want to know how well does a vaccine work for an individual who receives it in the context of basically nobody else is vaccinated, that's where we look at randomized trials. And with masking, it's the same type of intervention. If we wanted to know for an individual person wearing a particular mask, according to a certain protocol, in the context of no, nobody else is really doing anything, will that mask reduce their risk? That's what a randomized trial is going to tell us. If we want to know how does a mandate or a mask program work, we're going to have to look at the observational evidence. And this requires tools which evidence-based medicine is not set up to use and not really familiar with but which, you know, health economics, health policy, and epidemiology are basically designed around addressing. Mm -hmm. Those are the focus of these fields. And then the last point about the Cochrane Review that I want to make is that there is sort of an equivocation in it about the different types of outcomes with the idea that serological evidence of infection is the best and most objective outcome. And that because that outcome shows smaller effect than things like symptomatic COVID, that that means that the benefit of masks is most likely to be, you know, not, they don't really conclude it's likely to be anything at all, but Mm -hmm. of the possibilities, they ver towards not effective. (laughs) But the problem is we know with infectious diseases, there is not a single marker, right? There's Mm -hmm. infection, There's symptoms, there's severity of symptoms, and we know people can be asymptomatically infected, but we also know that people who are asymptomatically infected are are less likely to die, and that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so if 
all masks do is reduce the viral load you're exposed to and thus the severity of symptoms, that's still a useful benefit of masks, even if it doesn't, even if they don't protect against infection. Such an important point. What we're seeing with the vaccines, too, right? Mm -hmm. Vaccines. We actually did not measure the vaccine efficacy against infection at the serological level because that was not the immediately important target in the beginning of the pandemic. What we knew is that we needed to get vaccines that reduced severe illness and death. And so those were the outcomes in the vaccine trials. We saw a reduction from the vaccines. We know that any reduction on infection is going to be no more than that, but could be less than that, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also, I think as this conversation should hopefully convince maybe some people who didn't previously see the limits of like a vaccine-only sort of silver bullet strategy, it's not that saying like, you know, we really need to layer vaccines and masks is somehow like shitting on the vaccine or saying that it's not effective. It's like, in terms of what we're expecting these interventions to be, like, do you want to sort of present it honestly and have a discussion about how we reduce disease exponentially? Or do we want to sort of make a broad proclamation about, you know, having certainty over one intervention being the sort of singular way to go and put all of our eggs in that that basket? And ultimately, that has been our biggest mistake of the pandemic consistently is really kind of over-relying on some interventions while downplaying or trying to actively discourage other ones that actually, you know, might provide great benefits if layered on the ones that we've already invested so much into. Exactly. And I think kind of related to that, there's this idea that there's been a very big push to say something has to work everywhere and for everyone one in order to work. And so taking evidence from one context and assuming that it tells us something exactly about another context. And I think if we think about, you know, not infectious disease, let's think about a a traffic accident safety as a (laughs) a sort of less controversial topic, right? We can think about, you know, speed limits reduce both the occurrence and severity of crashes. Seatbelts reduce the severity of crashes, but not the occurrence, Mm -hmm. right? But we pair those together um, because we do want to reduce the severity of crashes as much as possible, but also reducing their occurrence is pretty good, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Another another kind of similar example is around the idea of helmets on bicycles. So um, in the U.S., where we don't have protected bicycle lanes, there's very strong evidence that Bicyclists wearing helmets are going to have less severe injuries following a crash or a collision with a car. Um, In Europe, where a lot of cities have been redesigned to be extremely bicycle friendly, where there's protected bicycle lanes and even a culture of bicycle right of way and much lower um, inner city speed limits to accommodate bicycles, there is very little evidence that helmets provide any additional benefit. And In fact, nobody really wears helmets. And this is directly related to the fact that they've put in place all of this context, which reduces the incidence Mm, of mm -hmm. accidents so that reducing the severity really has very limited additional benefit. Whereas in the U.S., we focused on limiting the severity of accidents and not so much focused on reducing the incidence of those accidents. And that's the same thing that may be happening with COVID. What we see is that in different countries with different healthcare systems and with different cultures around distancing and different population densities, all of these things, that some countries are experiencing less contact between individuals and therefore less transmission. And other countries are naturally experiencing better care of people who are infected and therefore lower severity. And so the different types of interventions that are needed are going to need to target different parts of the process in these different countries. And we can't really say, well, masks in Denmark did this and therefore masks in the U.S. will do this or vice versa. We need to think about the whole context because infectious disease is not just this one thing that happens to one person. Mm. I really, really appreciate you articulating that both in the context of COVID and then in these other two examples of bicycles and car accidents, which like often are 
you know, part of the conversation around um, why we don't need masks used in the opposite <laughs> direction as well. I'm thinking now specifically of things like, you know, Emily Oster um, and her work prior to COVID, you know, giving advice to parents where it was a lot of sort of pooling data from different contexts to come to one conclusion. And that's sort of exactly the model with which she approached a lot of her pandemic-related data analysis, which similarly, I think, produced reductive results directly dependent from the limited vantage point with which she approached asking her research questions. And, you know, and, and this is important in terms of understanding what different analyses mean, right? Because we could say something's like the gold standard, but if it's asking the wrong question, looking at d the wrong context, not looking at certain things, you know, and if it's applicable only quite narrowly, then that expertise is leveraged towards something that is completely different than actually what is being studied and presented. And you can honestly, can you can make the data say whatever you need them to say, you know, as evidenced by the way that this uh, review was then reproduced in media and used by people like Brett Stevens to say, OK, well, here is this definitive conclusion, which, you know, I think if someone else presented an argument to Brett Stevens that way, he'd be like, well, you're just completely jumping, jumping to conclusions. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's sort of in, in what uh, to what position politically and economically do these arguments contribute, I think, is also a huge factor. But I, I just so appreciate you breaking it down on like this purely sort of technical level of like, what did you observe actually throughout the period where mask mandates were rolled back in Massachusetts schools and what directly happened as a result of those political policy decisions and those decisions about what approach we were going to take to public health, where we were going to, you know, whether we were going to reinforce the individuated perspective of health that's very dominant in the United States, or if we were going to lean into trying to understand disease at the community level, and which conceptual model we go with has a huge influence on what response we're going to see. Right. And I think, you know, there is sort of a lot of responsibility that falls on public health here, because public health has been a really niche field. And so people don't know what this field is about, and they don't know then how to evaluate it. And what they see is you know, an abstract that has in the results some numbers and they think, OK, this must be all about the statistics. The statistics is the most important part. But almost always <laughs> the exact details of what did people do? Did anybody in this study do something you want to know about <laughs> and that you're making a decision about? And also, who was in this study and are they anything like the people you want to make your decisions for? Those questions can, one, be evaluated by anyone and mm -hmm. two, don't require a deep understanding of statistics. And yet the focus tends to be on, oh, well, the statistics and this particular <laughs> bias and whatever. And it's like, OK, but what actually are the interventions and who are they being tested amongst? Really, like that is where, you know, I would like to see things like the Cochrane Review focus the majority of their space on digging into what actually happened in these trials. What actually did they compare in their interventions and how might the results of those things differ? Mm -hmm. For example, you know, what we saw is that when the mandates were lifted, it seems like kids in Massachusetts schools or at least Boston area schools probably took off their masks because COVID cases went up and anecdotally we have evidence of that, but we do not have data on who exactly was wearing masks and of what type. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there may be places where mask wearing has become such a sort of expected default that removing a mandate doesn't change people's mask wearing behavior and therefore doesn't have an impact. Right. Like these things are potentially context dependent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if Japan were to say, you know, oh, we had a mandate, but we're going to lift the mandate and you can choose. There's a culture of wearing masks that is going to mean that there's not much change, right? So what we saw in Boston applies to Boston in the time period we saw it, and it applies to places that are like Boston in terms of attitudes towards mask wearing. But that's the question then, is this the same? So, you know, when we look at the Cochrane Review, there's a trial in Bangladesh. And what parts of the world can the trial in Bangladesh inform? Does it inform New York City? Probably not. 
You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) does it inform Denmark? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's this kind of question of what is happening in the trial and what is the context of it? And how does that fit with the types of decisions you want to make that really, you know, that's what we should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. But I think I think the real take home is that anyone who tells you, okay, we've got definitive proof of masks, they don't work. Well, what does that even mean? And, you know, so that's where, you know, you want to sort of see what are people saying? Are they describing what actually happened? What is the setting? What intervention are they saying work? And and kind of digging into that a little bit more. And that's more important than digging into the statistics. And I say this as someone who's a lot of their work is on developing better statistics. So it's not like I don't like statistics. No, but, but it's that you know statistics. Yeah. <laughs> and you know the limits of statistics. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, so, yeah, that was, that's, that's what I would leave to your audience. Oh, Ellie, thank you so much. This uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know you have to run, but this has been awesome and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. I think that's a great place to leave it for today. If you'd like to follow Ellie, she's on Twitter at Epi Ellie. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, Thank you for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. We'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. Everyone else, we'll see you later next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.